Hello and welcome to the Ori Spotlight Podcast. We're talking to leaders across the cell and gene therapy industry and telling you more about Ori's mission to manufacture brighter futures. I'm Jason Foster, the CEO of Ori Biotech, and I'll be your host for today's podcast. This week on the Ori Spotlight, we welcome Anthony Davies, the CEO and founder of Dark Horse Consulting. Welcome, Anthony. Hello, Jason. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for joining me. We have known each other for a couple of years now, and uh, I know you're a man who likes to speak his mind, so I'm excited about the next hour of conversation. But first, I'd like to start off with a, an easy one, just to kind of get, get you warmed up and hear a little bit about how you got into cell and gene therapy back in the old days. Yes, Jason, that's a, that's a funny question for me to answer, because strange to say, I have been in cell and gene since graduate school. I did my PhD on scale up of a particular virus's production back in an age where scaling up viral vectors was an extraordinary, obscure and unfashionable thing to be doing, not like now. <laughs> and by another series of coincidences, I've stayed in cell and gene in various ways. Um, since then, uh, quite unusual, all of my better qualified friends went and got proper jobs making monoclonals and things, and I was never quite able to bring myself to do that. Looking back, having worked on Epstein-Barr virus in the 80s and Bacillus virus and adenovirus in the 90s, a bit of transfusion med, and then uh, cell therapies at Geron until founding Dark Horse, I've been in cell and gene therapy since graduate school continuously. And in hindsight, my career looks meticulously choreographed, Jason. Of course, the reality was I was bouncing from job to job like a, like a ball in a pinball machine or some <laughs> kind of brownie motion demonstration. But, but looking back, it's provided me with a unique, unique combination of cell, gene, academic, commercial, scale up, uh, even a bit of transfusion med thrown in for good measure. Right. I think it was Steve Jobs that said you can only connect the dots kind of in hindsight, how they all fit together. But the, the red thread has certainly been uh, cell and gene for quite a while. And then the, that led you to, to founding Dark Horse, which is a specialist in this area. Uh, can you tell us just a little bit more about your work at Dark Horse? Whatever you can say. Yes. No, I'm happy to. Um, I, I, founded, uh, I founded Dark Horse after a couple of years as a sole proprietor type consultant. And honestly, that was a, the sole prop thing was when I was, you know, quote unquote, between jobs, cough, cough. And I found to my surprise that uh, apart from apparently being unable to get a proper job, I really enjoyed being a consultant. It was broadening um, and you got to work on the really critical issues of whoever your client was. So I spent a thoroughly enjoyable year or two on, on my own. And then the funny thing that happened was I saw the clinical data emerging for the products which were going to become Kimraya and Yescarta and Lux Turner. And the Zuma trials and the Eliana trials in particular for those CAR-T products showed me that they were drugs like the world had not seen before for those indications. Clearly the field had come of age and cell and gene therapy had finally caught up with its expectations, the, the high expectations that people had had of it for a couple of decades. I also realized that CMC was going to be central to this field in a way that it is frankly no longer so central for say monoclonals or small molecules or medical devices. CMC, one of the first presentations I gave about from Dark Horse was it's the CMC, stupid. 
<laughs> to paraphrase, I think, uh, Bill Clinton's election slogan. And that led me to found the practice, build a practice rather than be a consultant. Big difference. Uh, that led me to found the practice uh, focused on CMC for cell and gene therapy. We have often said we've done a really good job of staying focused on cell and gene. That's the way it's going to be at Dark Horse. We're the only global practice with this focus. Not done such a good job of focusing on CMC. Um, I'm sure this is something we'll get stuck into later, Jason, but CMC problems have a habit of not being CMC problems. They have a habit of being quality problems, regulatory problems, facilities problems, and ultimately, uh, even, even for such well-funded institutions as ORI, financial problems, uh, because nobody has uh, limitless resources for development and decisions have to be made, right, Jason? Certainly. And technology problems as well, I would bet, which we'll, we'll cover off in the future yeah. also. Yeah. But a prescient uh, call, I would suggest, you know, focusing on CMC, certainly the manufacturing has been one of the major stumbling blocks over the last several years, certainly, uh, for the industry. Uh, and I wonder what kind of, what's your view on kind of where we've been for maybe for the last five years, where we are now, uh, and where we're headed as far as ultimately, as you know, uh, Ori's mission as a company is to enable widespread patient access uh, to these life-saving cell and gene therapies. And today, unfortunately, we have a situation where we have cures for cancer uh, that not enough patients can get access to uh, because they're too difficult to make, they're too expensive, they're relatively low throughput processes, all of these challenges you're very familiar with. Uh, so ultimately that's, you know, as a company, our raison d'etre. Uh, and I know it's something that's that's very important to you and, and the work that you do. So maybe you could just share with us a little bit about some of the most significant challenges that you've seen, you know, recently and the things that you're hearing and seeing, you know, how are we going to solve this problem as an industry? Yeah, boy, that, that's a lot to unpack there, uh, Jason. You know, we could, we could literally spend the rest of the day talking through those issues. So, so let, let me pick out a few and see if any of them pique your interest uh, and, and, and you see some intersect with Ori's mission, which we endorse thoroughly in, in this field of medicine. In 2017, those three products I mentioned earlier were all approved. Yes, Carter, Lux Turner, and Kim Raya. And at the time, Scott Gottlieb, when he, he was then the commissioner of the FDA, made, made bold predictions about how many INDs we would see in future years, and those were to be numbered in the hundreds, and how many approvals uh, we would then see uh, through the FDA. And if you multiply that to include the EMA and uh, your uh, MHRA, our MHRA in the UK and the PMDA and so forth, really we were expecting dozens and dozens of approvals in upcoming years. Frankly, the, the, the years since 2017 have been very disappointing. The approvals in this field have been in the single digits, and there have been multiple rejections, outright rejections from the FDA and uh, other jurisdictions, and many more delays and suspensions of trials. And this has really spanned uh, the entirety of cell and gene therapy. There have been rejections of AAV products, uh, rejections of other viral systems, uh, rejections of pure play cell therapies and uh, new 483s and rejections and delays for gene modified uh, cell therapies such as the you know, similar to those original CAR T's. And we ask ourselves frequently, you know, why is this happening? If you drill down into the root causes for these rejections, 
we see often a lot of commonality and the same mistakes being made again and again. Mm. So I think the, the, the main contrarian opinion I hold at the moment, uh, and as you know, we, we like contrarian opinions at Dark Horse a lot because they're, <laughs> they're, they're fun and stimulating. This one I think has the, uh, as you might say, the advantage of also being true, is that the last four years since 2017 have been extremely disappointing in commercial approvals. Indeed, you know, I've heard you voice that opinion, which, you know, I, I share with you. And I think, you know, one thing that I say, which maybe uh, isn't very popular either, is, you know, I'm afraid that if we don't figure this out relatively soon, it doesn't have to be today or tomorrow or even this year, but within the next several years, we need to make a business case for, for cell and gene therapies. They need to sh show that they can reach patients uh, in a in a large kind of accessible way, they can do so in a cost effective way. You know, we see twenty billion dollars invested last year in cell and gene therapies globally, biggest year ever, if, as far as what I've read. Ultimately, those investments will will demand a return. And I, and I wonder what your thoughts are on. You know, I don't think we can argue that we haven't proven the the clinical or scientific case uh, for cell and gene therapies. I think that's been very clearly proven. But what about the commercial case? What is it going to take for us to, to kind of make the full case and, and continue the level of investment and the, and the pace at which we're moving this, this industry forward? You're spot on there, Jason. This is becoming a, a commercial and a commercialization and, uh, issue. And the question that people will start asking is, are these products commercializable? Uh, we published a paper uh, a few years ago where Katie Spink and uh, some of our colleagues uh, analyzed the economics of CAR-T manufacturing. Yes. And we, we, they did two really interesting calculations. One was looking at the current pricing of products to assume that all of the then approved drugs of the new wave of cell and gene, which is basically the, the, the troika I mentioned, uh, reached 100% market penetrance at current pricing. And the other calculation was that if five you know, pretty good blockbuster approvals were received and they each reached about, I think they said 20% market penetration and the pricing of those products, I think she took the, the mean uh, of the existing products, okay? Mm -hmm. And of course, the first calculation barely made any difference on say US or Western world drug spend at all in the 0.1% or less range. But if we had just a few decent approvals, then it would essentially bankrupt the healthcare system. And that's, that's, that's not okay. You know, we all want, uh, you know, we all want a solid tumor or, uh, a neurological, a big neurological disease like Parkinson's to, to get the ticket. Um, but at today's pricing, um, that's, that's just, can't happen. Now, we, let's now distinguish uh, something which I know is very close to your heart, Jason. Let's distinguish price from cost. Mm -hmm. Okay, we looked at the margins being uh, being uh, cornered by those three products, and we concluded they were pretty normal. Okay, it wasn't uh, an example. These high prices we see of you know five hundred thousand, even two million dollar drugs, the margins were pretty standard. Yes, and it was the cost of goods sold which was driving that. So our follow-on prediction is that unless COGS are significantly reduced, 
Costa Gasol, that's an acronym I think we'll be using a lot in today's call, <laughs> then we're doomed in the sense that society would not be able to afford the incremental medical benefit which these uh, drugs bring. And by the way, you know, again, you're spot on, Jason, by saying that you know, looking at all of these recent delays, suspensions and uh, rejections, almost none, hang on a second, none of them are solely on clinical grounds. Almost all of them are not on clinical grounds at all. A huge amount of them uh, boil down to the, uh, the, the good old CMC. Yeah. Okay. We come, we come back to CMC and, and quality again. No, I think, you know, I, I wholeheartedly agree with, you know, the ultimately it's a time cost quality trade-off that therapy developers are forced to make, trying to get products to market, trying to create repeatable processes and trying to do so in a cost-effective way so that they can, they can charge a reasonable price out there. Uh, and reading the work that you and your colleagues had, had published, you know, you found, I found myself nodding furiously to say, you know, the answer, certainly at least part of the answer, is getting cost of, cost of goods down substantially. I know I have an opinion, obviously, or else I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing on, on how best to do this. But, you know, what is it you see? What is it, you know, we've done analyses looking at what are those con constituent parts of cost of goods? And a lot of it's labor, you know, very expensive, highly trained people. A lot of it's, you know, large facilities. Uh, a lot of it also is the kind of the inputs, you know, what's going into the process, like, you know, expensive vectors, these kinds of things. What's your view? I mean, where's the kind of low hanging fruit to pick uh, as we're trying to look at bringing down these cost of goods, improving quality and improving kind of reliability of these processes? I think that's what uh, interviewers would, would refer to as a, le a leading question, and you're, I think you're leading it perfectly. And let's talk about skilled human intervention. In terms of low-hanging fruit, that is it, in my opinion. The number of times a highly trained, which leads back to highly expensive human, has to intervene in the process is tightly indexed to the ultimate cost of that product. It would be, I think, a little bit oversimplifying to say what that automation is the solution. Mm -hmm. Obviously, some kind of automation is not quite as simple as that, but almost. I mean, we can get stuck in there later if we have time. But um, removal of these interventions uh, is enormously impactful on, on the cogs of this type of product. Another subtext here is plant utilization. If you employ a large number of skilled people because they have to intervene in the process, if the process actually isn't running 100% of the time and they're not being called upon to intervene in it, they're sitting there twiddling their thumbs being highly expensive, valuable human capital. Yes. The final part of this equation is that these skilled people are in short supply and high demand and as long as uh, the need for them remains in place, they going to that that in and of itself, that essentially human capital, human resources problem is going to work against scaling uh, of manufacturing and against uh, cost reduction in manufacturing as their value, uh, their actual perceived value increases even further. Makes sense. I mean, someone said to me the other day, the only thing more expensive than a large full facility is a large empty facility. If it's, not, if it's not running, if you're not spreading revenue over those fixed costs that you've already spent, then you know, you're not getting the return on investment for that large amount of money, often 100, maybe even $150 million to build a big GMP facility that's been sunk into the ground. 
and I really feel for kind of heads of manufacturing at, at therapy developers, they're in an unenviable position in that they have to try and predict how much space should I build? How much demand am I going to have at some time point in the future with all of the other variables at play, like, you know, market access and pricing and throughput and manufacturing? It's a pretty complicated paradigm to try and figure out. And so you get either these very large facilities that are built out that sit empty uh, for quite a long time, costing a lot of money, or you undercook it and you get a facility that fills up too fast and you have to, God forbid, build another one. Uh, and this is the kind of challenge that I see the industry facing where there isn't that just kind of just-in-time scalable approach, which is what, as you know, or he's trying to bring to the market to kind of de-risk that manufacturing investment decision to allow therapy developers, CDMOs, you know, AMCs to, to, to expand as they need the capacity. Uh, but it's not, a, it's not an easy nut to crack for sure. And, and a lot of people out there have, have been trying, but have yet to be successful. Furthermore, Jason, as you know, for a lot of your clients or your potential future clients, the initiation of manufacturing runs is completely stochastic. It's not like they're going to a freezer and pulling out a vial of cells and cracking it open uh, on the day of their, their choice. Yes. For autologous medicine, the starting material, the loop pack or whatever it is, arrives when it arrives, and it probably arrives with 24 to 48 hours notice, essentially, uh, or at least could do. Mm -hmm. So maintaining readiness, you know, maintaining 24, 7, 365 readiness is even more expensive in that regard. So the more you know, your, your devices can be ready 24 7 365 as long as they're plugged in yep. the humans to operate them can't <laughs> i mean you alluded to it a, a second ago i wonder kind of your thoughts on we've seen a lot of investment going into aloe approaches you know using donor cells which you know i think we're all kind of supportive of, of exploring that certainly as a as a potential solution but we're aware that you know aloe methods certainly introduce other risks you know, be they clinical or scientific into the process to, to really try and fix what ultimately is a manufacturing problem. I wonder what your opinion is on kind of the allo versus auto debate, uh, whether you think one will win out or both will coexist or, or something else, some other choice D that we haven't, haven't thought about at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, now's the time for me to sort of, now's the time in the interview where I, I try to annoy Jason, which is probably going to be fairly unsuccessful because of your equanimity. But I think uh, I'm going to speak to uh, the benefits of allo medicine and, uh, and mention one of your great competitors. But we'll be editing that out, Anthony, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> Sit back and put yourself, can, can the, uh, the organizers put Jason on mute for a couple of minutes? <laughs> so the, you know, the, 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 the great, the great Stefan Miltony, on one of his very rare public addresses, started out with uh, a joke. And, uh, and you, you know you're a nerd if you laugh at this joke. He, he said, I, I'm a great fan of allergenic medicine. You know, cue the gasp from the audience because Stefan basically built his company on everything but. And then he wagged his finger at us and said, just one problem, the human immune system. <laughs> and he's right. Yeah. The, 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 the allergenic medicine is you know, great in principle, off the shelf, limitless manufacturing, blah, 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 except that the autologous, to put it another way, autologous products have the overwhelming advantage of, of working. You, you are never going to uh, encounter issues with new graft host disease or any of the other allograft 
rejection issues. Yes. You know, do I think that allergenic medicine will work in many circumstances? Absolutely I do. Do I think that autologous manufacturing will uh, be the only solution in many situations? Absolutely I do. Do I think there will be indications and populations and maybe even geographies where autologous medicine will not work? Yes. So I think you know the, the, the answer to the question, Jason, of whether auto or you know, will auto or allo uh, win is you know, an emphatic both. Yes. No, I think, you know, I've heard yourself and others like Bruce Levine, you know, say similar things that there will be some indications for some cell types where allo works great. There'll be others where, where auto is the answer and we need to prepare for that future where both, uh, both are available, hopefully for patients. And, you know, at Ori, we, we plan to have a solution for, for both, you know, right now we're focused in autologous, as you know, cause that's really where the, the current research and, and market is, Yeah. but definitely planning on a, on a future where aloe is, is present for patients. Cause it makes sense. It makes sense. And I think it's just a question of, of when, not if. Look, I mean, let's look back at monoclonals, which is a, a, something that, as you know, you know, I, I like to do a lot in the in the in the vein of if failure to study history dooms you to repeat it. And it was a time some 15 years ago when Lucentis first started to really duke it out with Avastin, where people said, "Look, you know, look at this E. coli expressed FAB fragment, which can be manufactured at one thousandth the cogs." of a CHO-derived monoclonal antibody. And there I, there, that I see sort of as the analogy between, you know, the, the auto and the allo approaches, mm. uh, and certainly in a cost basis. There is no future for antibodies. Everything will be an FAB. It's small, it's better characterized, it's cheap as chips. And, uh, you know, 15 years later, last time I checked, both are doing just fine. Avast antibodies are doing okay. <laughs> right. And uh, sure, we'd love to make everything in your coli, E. coli if we could, but I'm afraid we can't. Sure. No, it's a great analogy. And what's your, I know you and your team spend a lot of time talking to regulators around the world, the FDA, the MHRA, the EMA, et cetera. What's the, what, what kinds of conversations are you having with the regulators these days? What's top of mind for them? Uh, I remember with your team being with the FDA last last year, having a, a CAT meeting, uh, the Cyber Advanced Technology Team, and discussing our technologies, and there was a tremendous amount of interest um, from Peter and, and the Cyber team. Uh, and really, you know, I, I attribute that to their keen interest to ensure that these fantastic therapeutics and technologies that they see being developed make it to patients. Um, and I wonder what your perspective is on that, kind of a year later, and. I know these are kind of constant dialogues that you're involved in. Yeah, no, they are. And we love, uh, with, I think the CAT meetings are probably our favorite meetings and it was an absolute pleasure. It was always a pleasure. It was an absolute pleasure to take you to it last year. Um, and you know, Peter Marx's enthusiasm is genuine and heartfelt and it extends deep into the CIBA organization. It's mirrored globally. I think that the need to bring these technologies in is recognized by regulators. They see themselves as, you know, they want to get roadblocks out of your way, but they have the, you know, the dual mandate to make sure on the one hand that drugs do get approved, uh, and on the other hand to make sure that drugs which are not safe or effective uh, do not get approved until such time as they are. So I think the, you know, the advanced technologies emphasis is is, is strong in all of the world's regulators. 
but I also feel that they are, there is also some level of exasperation in regulators, as I mentioned before, which has resulted in in so many of these uh, so many of these rejections and delays and so forth. And I'd just like to expand, if I can, and lead you down a path, uh, because I think one of the themes we see so much from the regulators, who are on the one hand embracing new technology, is on the other hand some exasperation uh, in the field of comparability. Mm. If you are making you know, a drug one way with old technology and then need to uh, move forward with newer technology, uh, it is entirely the sponsor's responsibility, it's not actually your responsibility, Jason, but it's the sponsor's responsibility to demonstrate comparability between old and new processes, between processes before they're scaled up, perhaps more in an allo context, or scaled out more in your auto uh, autologous context. And this is an area which I, I really hope advanced technologies focus on, both uh, in terms of the you know the the instrumentation and the inline type monitoring which companies such as yours can build into these uh, these these novel manufacturing technologies uh, and also into the analytical the offline analytical methods themselves uh, which are used to show comparability uh, both of product and process intermediate because let's let's remind ourselves from from regulators perspective it's not all about the end of process quality control tests it's about how you got there from the starting material and the, the comparability of process intermediates uh, along the way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great point. And you know, one of the things that struck me, as you know, I'm relatively new uh, to cell and gene therapy, unlike yourself. I've only been in it a couple of years, came, coming from a small molecule background. The amount of work that goes into kind of translating these processes out of the kind of discovery academic setting to get them into a clinic and to get to a clinical phase there's a huge amount of work and a huge amount of time and a huge amount of money spent doing that. But oftentimes that process all has to be done again, uh, coming out of the clinic and trying to get to a commercial, repeatable commercial scale manufacturing process. So the point that you raised around comparability of early stage processes through mid stage to, to late commercial stage, you know, you see, I just saw recently a, a UK based manufacturer facing a delay because of this. And it seems to be quite common uh, these days that really being able to replicate that process in a high quality way, uh, demonstrating that it's in control uh, seems to be very, very difficult. One of the, the benefits we hope to be able to bring uh, with the Ori platform is that scalability sort of guaranteed from the beginning. You start with the platform and develop your process on it. It will scale with you kind of seamlessly through, through clinical and then ultimately commercial scale manufacturing, which my hope is will save a lot of time, uh, importantly, time to market for, for products, uh, but a lot of those investment dollars that can be spent you know, elsewhere to good end, not trying to revamp a process or shove a square peg into a round hole if we can avoid it. You must come across a lot of, try not to be mean here, but a, a lot of academic processes, which are probably largely manual, probably still largely not in a bioreactor of any sort mm -hmm. and you need to lift that process out of the tissue culture hood and into your bioreactor you know how does that I, i'm just gen, i know you're meant to be interviewing me but i'm really <laughs> going to say you know who's interviewing you here. Uh, <laughs> i'm glad to ask question uh how does that how is that is that getting better or worse in the years you've been in the field <laughs> yeah it's interesting so what we see is i mean as you know there's 
depending on what numbers you believe, between 1,000 and, and 2,000 clinical trials happening globally in cell and gene therapy. The vast majority are in the early stage, either preclinical or phase one. But a lot of the, the companies who are serious about you know, the work and, and are moving forward and they're properly backed and you know, properly capitalized are bringing on manufacturing talent kind of earlier and earlier even in the preclinical stage, you know, knowing that they have an endpoint in mind. They have a, a solution that they have to solve at some point. And so they want to try and tackle it as early as possible. So that's a positive, certainly. Uh, we see a lot of uh, early stage therapy developers focused on getting the manufacturing right, uh, which is great. I think conversely, uh, though, equally, the industry continues to focus on the biology almost to the exclusion of everything else in the early phases. Everyone's focused on the cells. You know, what are the cells doing? What are their, what are their characteristics? What are their phenotypes? You know, how do they behave? Which all makes perfect sense uh, and is understandable. And, and part, that's, that's where we start, you know, when we engage with a partner. But ultimately benefits has been proven by a lot of those, the kind of early products that you mentioned come from the technology piece, not the, not the uh, biology piece. If we can do this, you can get the cells right, can you do it repeatedly and can you do it scalably and can you do it cost effectively uh, where it seems as though a lot of a lot of you know either researchers or companies fall over um, so we treat both of those elements as equally important and then the third leg of the ori stool which you will have heard me say is really this kind of the data piece and how do we capture data out of the system how do we understand that data in new ways using advanced analytics, whether it be multivariate analysis or machine learning or whatever other, other, other tools are available to us? But being able to learn more quickly. You know, as you said, a lot of these processes exist in bags. They exist in an analog world with lab notebooks and, and paper, paper batch records. So how do we kind of step as an industry together forward into the 21st century utilizing some of these tools and learning more quickly? You know, we have a data platform that will hopefully allow therapy developers to learn at a much expedited pace and learn more about their process, identifying variability, identifying opportunities for optimization uh, as we help them uh, perfect the process and then scale it. So there's a long answer to a short question, which is we still see a lot of breadth. Uh, there's a lot of breadth of approaches, mostly focused in biology, but I think some of the leaders are really beginning to focus on, on the technology equally and what it can potentially do for them in the kind of medium to long term, as opposed to just just focusing on today's problem, which is you know usually a preclinical process development problem or a, or a clinical problem. I think that's so interesting, and I really like your emphasis on data and analytics and multivariate approach and so forth. I think if all of our clients had that data from earlier in their processes development, the regulatory path and the path to scaling, whether it's up or out would be much, much easier. So I, you know, I, we, as you know, we, we thoroughly endorse that approach. I mean, as a American talking to you from London, talking to a Brit who lives in California, you know, <laughs> I would use a football anal analogy, but American football, as they call it over here is, you know, our hope is that, you know, if we do our jobs right, we'll be able to help our partners start out on the 50 yard line. You know, you don't have to start on your own goal line and relearn the same lessons that everyone else has learned the hard way. You know, how can we help yeah. you? optimize from the from the very beginning and start out ahead of the game so you don't have to spend all that time you know reinventing the wheel no you're right uh, american american football as it is called um <laughs> it's a great game for analogists because basically a lot we're seeing clients getting slapped with you know 10 15 yard penalties for not having done something three years ago mm. and you can't 
you know, Dark Horse has many things, but one of the things we do not have is a time machine to go back three years and generate the data you should have generated then in order to meet those expectations. And it's, it's, it's really terrible. And, you know, perhaps, to, I don't know if it is, even is overextending the analogy. It's like getting a 15-yard penalty when you're, you know, you're on the three-yard line. <laughs> yeah. And it's frustrating. Let's be honest. It's, you know, it's frustrating to It's frustrating to the investors. It's frustrating to uh, the, the companies. And it's, and it's ultimately frustrating to the patients. And, and I think it's, you know, every technology company like ours has this kind of dual challenge of being far enough ahead of where the technology or the customer base is today to be relevant to what they're doing, uh, but to stretch far enough ahead to sort of see what's possible, you know, the art of the possible. And, you know, we're a cloud native platform. We want to provide cloud analytics uh, in real time so we can tell operators what's happening in their cell culture and we can make suggestions about what, what to do and what not to do. And that's scary, I think, for a lot of people to think about it that way. You know, as you know, cell culture is more art than science. People like to look at the cells and how are they growing and what do they look like? And it's, it is quite a, uh, an interesting art. Um, but I think we can, we can leverage both the best of both by automating and, and uh, bringing analytics and tools in to the low value activities and letting the human operators do the high value activities where you know, those judgment calls and the training really matters. And that's the hope that we can meld the two, get the best of both worlds, you know, coming together. Uh, one of the questions I had for you was just to really understand, you know, related to that uh, and some of the other topics we've discussed, what would you say is kind of the biggest change in mindset that you've seen maybe over the last couple of years um, in cell and gene therapy? I mean, clearly there's been some successes, there's been some challenges. Um, where do you see kind of the, the change starting to happen in the industry? There's just not been enough change. I was afraid you might say that. Yeah, there's just not been enough change. It's it's sort of, you know, reminiscent of the, the joke about how many psychiatrists it takes to change a light bulb, which yes, and if you haven't heard that before, it's only one, but the light bulbs really got to want to change. And I think people are dining out on the, they're still basking in the glory of Yes Carter and uh, Kim Raya and turning a, a blind eye to the, the fact that the, that the approval flow over the, the, next, the last three or four years has been dismal. I think you know, the, the next question is, okay, so what should be changing? I think there's a just starting to be an awareness of, of mainly this thing around comparability and analytics. And there was also an increasing awareness. So here's another, another thing we, we feel pretty strongly, and I, I think we're in a minority here, I hear a lot of chatter about how the FDA is tightening up. Suddenly the FDA is tightening up on cell and gene and the honeymoon's over, you know, that the fairy tale is, is, has ended. I, if you push me, I can find a few specific examples where they have tightened something up since, say, Kim Raya's potency assay or a few odds and ends like that. But generally, I feel that is a fallacy. What is happening is that the field's products, the bell curve of where the products are in development, you know, pre-clean, one, two, three, and commercial, uh, is shifting rightwards to an area, pre-commercial and approval, where the FDA and the other regulators have already been pretty darn tightened up, okay? And in your newsflash, to get a product approved, you need a validated potency assay. That's been true for at least 15 or 20 years, okay? And people seem shocked that this it's going to apply to their 
there's certain gene therapy and, and the, there were no whole passes. You know, another thing I think which is, is changing, Jason, is that you know, I joked a, a year or two ago by saying that phase two is the new phase three. I think that's true. And I think also overdue in this field is sweeping out phase one, phase two, phase three, and replacing it with properly adaptive trial design. Because you know, here's the thing with Sanji. The products are so good, they're so effective, that a lot of them are getting enough data in phase two to go for licensure. That means they do not have anything better than phase two CMC. But there are still no free passes for the CMC. The, the EMA, the FDA, the PMDA will all say, you know, clinical data, terrific, CMC, we need to talk. And that's slowly becoming known. And we get more clients coming to us early on saying, uh, you know, help us, help us look, uh, you know, help us start at the end, as we say, and work backwards from there. And I think, as you know, we, we don't endorse platforms. And there are multiple, uh, shall we say, you know, fast followers in the autologous bioreactor field, of which you uh, are one of the leaders. But we think that, that that sort of approach is what's going to be needed to enable avoiding these these awful penalties and delays when you're when you're about to score. I think you make a a compelling case, you know, to really to address manufacturing earlier. I mean, this is this is the big issue. Again, we're we're seeing fantastic clinical results, but ultimately the agency is the agencies globally aren't going to relax their their safety and quality standards, you know, for patients, nor should they. So addressing these issues earlier is more important than ever. And I think you make a great case for that. And and the you know there was this school of thought maybe I don't know how many years ago five or ten years ago where uh, if you got reasonable data in phase one and phase two that someone would come buy you out and it would be someone else's problem. You know I don't need to worry about manufacturing. I'm just not sure those days are with us anymore. I think the market's changed. I think people's attitudes have changed to a more kind of show me, show me how you're going to do this, show me how you're going to reach the market at scale, show me how you're going to ensure quality and safety. Um, before those kind of you know big deals get get done, you know, what's your thought on that? Is that am, am I reading that through my own rose-colored glasses, or would you uh, would you suggest similar? I, I do agree with you. One of the issues is you know, can can you you might say well we can't afford not to pay attention to manufacturing early, and and we would certainly in, in, endorse that. But at the end of the day, you can only buy what you, what you can afford, and I think it, it is incumbent on on, on companies such as yourselves to provide the ability to pay attention to manufacturing early at a reasonable at a reasonable price. Absolutely. And I think that that's gonna happen. But if if there's one thing that competitors can bring to the table, uh, it is a you know, is cheaper hardware and cheaper need for intervention to run the thing. And uh, I think making paying attention to manufacturing earlier cheaper, if that convoluted sentence makes sense, uh, is something critical that vendors uh, such as yourself can bring to the table. Then the deals will, will flow easier, and I completely agree with you, basically, is what I'm saying. I mean, we talk a lot about internally about not only kind of innovation in the biology space or technical you know, engineering space, but about business model innovation, trying to align our incentives with those of our partners and make sure that we kind of remove the barriers to 
to adoption as much as we can and thinking about how we can provide, you know, manufacturing as a service is what we call it, where we can de-risk some of that investment, allow people to, to adapt their processes onto the platform and understand the benefits and then go from there, not have these huge upfront costs uh, that they have to deliver, you know, before even really getting their hands on the, on the technology. So we're thinking, trying to think about it in a 360 degree view. We need to innovate across the value chain. Uh, that's not only biology, engineering, and data, but it's also around you know business model and, and how do we work together with with therapy developers to to ensure that we're aligned with what they need to accomplish. But one thing I did want to ask you about was just you know if you could just you know dust off your crystal ball a little bit and, and you know offer advice to those in the in the field you know looking at the five or ten year view. You know my strong hope. I mean you see. The thing that compelled me to get involved with the ORE business and opportunity is, you know, the, the ultimate vision of ensuring that this fantastic, these fantastic medicines make it to patients. You know, we all want that. Everyone in the industry, you know, can, can articulate that desire. You know, how, how does it look in the next, in the five-year view, in the 10-year view? My fear is that, you know, the, the next shiny object comes along if we can't figure out some of these challenges and maybe not quite as good for patients or not quite as, as clinically effective, but maybe easier to manufacture, which may not be the best thing, the best outcome for, for patients. Well, you know, I mean, things, things change. And what I want to remember 2024 was to remember it as the year that vaccinology changed forever. Probably the biggest change since 1955 when the, when the Salk vaccine uh, came out. I don't want to remember it as the year of the pandemic. I want to, to remember it as the year that vaccinology changed. And mRNA and uh, lipid nanoparticles and adenoviruses were the principal agents of those changes. And, you know, if you are a company manufacturing old-fashioned vaccines in eggs, then that change, unless you adapt quickly, will be bad for you. So I think, Jason, none, none of us can exclude the possibility that uh, a new technology will emerge from the shadows and take over large parts of markets, which and gene therapy are looking at uh, you know, hungrily today. Chances are that won't happen. It's not something which happens every year. You know, we, see, we see a clear hyper growth scenario for cell and gene therapy, depending on who you ask for at least the next five years plus. Okay, and we see that from pretty sober modeling, uh, looking back at the history of monoclonals, looking at the products currently in clinical trials and uh, present and historical success and failure rates for those trials. So we, we see, honestly, hyper growth for the field for the foreseeable future in that, in that time horizon you point out, asterisk, as long as the cost of goods is diligently worked on and double asterisk as long as comparability slash analytical and characterization challenges are met in a robust manner. So that's my, that's my sort of macro crystal ball for the field, if you will. No, great advice for those of us in the field that uh, to stay laser focused on those issues that are going to move the needle, hopefully enable these incredible technologies to, to reach the market and reach patients at scale. So I uh, wanted to thank Anthony Davies for his time this evening and for joining us. Thank you so much, Anthony. Thank you, Jason. It's always a pleasure. And uh, we hope that we'll be able to do it in person 
sooner rather than later. I very much look forward to it. Have a good evening. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Ori Spotlight Podcast. To keep up with the latest in cell and gene therapy and to follow us on our mission to manufacture brighter futures for patients, head to the show notes to follow us on social media or visit oribiotech.com.